Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert Lamb, and with me is our other co-host... I'm Drew Tan. Yo, 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 everybody. How's everybody doing today? Today, we're coming at you with a whole new episode. Uh, you know, we're going to discuss... Uh, a, we're going to do a, a book review type episode where we discuss uh, the comic The Nail by Alan Davis. Uh, he wrote and drew it. And uh, how about we start by giving a little bit of background information about who Alan Davis is and what he's all about. Drew? Yeah. Uh, so... The full title of the comic is Justice League of America, The Nail, uh, by uh, Alan Davis. He uh, wrote and penciled it, inked by Mark Farmer, colored by Trish Mulvihill, lettered by Patricia Prentice. Uh, this comic was a DC comic published under their Elseworlds imprint uh, back in 1998 as a three-part uh, prestige format miniseries. And Alan Davis is the uh, main creative force, being the writer and penciler of the comic. Uh, just a little bit about him. He's, if you if you're not familiar with his work, he's a, a British creator, probably uh, best known for his his work on uh, X Men, uh, various X Men comics with uh, Chris Claremont, uh, a run on Excalibur. He also did Captain Britain with Alan Moore for a Marvel's UK line back in the 80s. He also did a couple issues of Miracle Man with Alan Moore. So he, he's a guy that I think is probably what I would consider, for me personally, my platonic ideal for superhero art. And what I mean by that is just to say that his his artwork, if you if you had if you took any superhero comic and you just applied his art to it, and he, like if you just had him draw whatever superhero comic you think of, that would be a pretty good looking book that would at least make me interested in picking it up. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, his uh, like. I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of different styles that go into um, superhero comic books, but his is just, I guess the way that I would describe it is it's just classic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One other book. Oh, uh, the one other book that I wanted to mention that mm -hmm. he did was, um, I think another series that he wrote and drew for Marvel was clandestine. Yeah. So or clandestine. Yeah. I, I'm never it? sure how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But go ahead. What were we yeah, I, was, I was just going to say that uh, his, his uh, drawing style is kind of a mix between realism and cartoonishness. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause he's definitely done some stuff where it's pretty realistic for the most part. Like if you look at his uh, miracle man, comics or marvel man as it's it was known in the uk or if you look at uh look at uh some of his other stuff like uh what am i what am i thinking of captain britain mm. like, a lot of that stuff f for the most part is drawn in a pretty pretty realistic way mm. but he's he's also got kind of cartoonish inclinations at times 
like some of the stuff that he did in Excalibur. Yeah, it, when it, he draws like alternate dimensions or aliens. Yeah, yeah, like he draws pretty funny cartoony aliens and they're kind of inhabiting the same space as these uh, you know, the superheroes that are drawn in very realistic style. Uh, and he's even done I remember he did a comic another comic with Alan Moore for 2000 AD back in the 80s called DR and Quinch. That was about two uh, wild aliens just going on adventures throughout the galaxy, causing a ruckus everywhere they went. And and that was a fairly cartoonish uh, style of that he used in that one too. So he, he's able to, to mix and match those elements. But yeah. I think what, what always ties his work together is a really distinct sense of proper anatomy yeah like yeah sounds like your dog agrees with me she's all on board <laughs> hold on <laughs> yeah i was gonna say that uh with alan davis's art even even when he's drawing uh figures that are more on the outlandish or cartoonish side they've always got appropriate proportions they might have you know perf- perfect physical bodies like he draws a lot of his men with uh just they're like super toned really cut their their abs are like ice trays you know they're just like really fit looking people but no one looks uh you know everything every part of the body looks the way that it's supposed to and i think that helps with the with the believability of of his work like it's kind of a, a good mix of superheroic uh dynamic drawing mixed with realism yeah Yeah, so i I guess i'd call it superheroic realism yeah i mean i feel like this is something that you've mentioned a couple of times in regards to other artists who draw in similar styles or uh who uh attempt to do to achieve similar a similar effect on their comics yeah, like so, for example, I'd, I'd say somebody who was pretty influenced by Alan Davis is Brian Hitch. Yeah, like if you look at Brian Hitch's stuff in uh like his his uh, stuff from the earlier two thousands or even the late nineties, he did uh, some Stormwatch. He did The Authority. Like those comics in particular, they really scream Alan Davis influenced me. You know? Yeah, there's. There's a fleshiness to the way that Alan Davis draws people where they're not quite plump, but, you know, it feels like the way that he draws their bodies, like, he accurately captures the texture of, I mean, this sounds kind of gross, but he he accurately <laughs> captures the texture of meat, essentially, right? <laughs> of flesh. We're all like, just meat. <laughs> Like, I don't think he draws it in a way, like, there are some guys who, who like, love drawing musculature, and, you know, there was a period of time where that, that style of art was very popular, where yeah. you had guys with 29 packs on top yeah. of, you know, 30 packs or whatever, but the, yeah, I, I, I'd say, like, for me, uh, the way that he draws people, uh, the fleshy tone of of the way that he draws people is what has always captured me, you know? Yeah. They're proportionate. 
Yeah, um, like even just looking at like their cheeks and their facial structure, it it's it's not. Yeah, there's, I guess a life, a life, a certain life to it, and uh, Brian Hitch definitely copies or, uh, not copies, but uh, has a similar effect when he draws his people. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I'm I'm a big Alan Davis fan, and I feel like in recent years, I'm not sure how active he's been as a penciler. I, I don't really, I haven't. It feels like it's been a long time since I've seen a comic from him. Uh, sometimes I still see him do covers for Marvel, mm. but in, in terms of interior art, uh, yeah, I, I feel like it's been a few years. Or if he's done anything, I. I'm just not aware of it, but a lot of the stuff that he's done in the past is, uh, you know, it's it's really influential stuff, classic yeah. stuff. I mean, it, it holds up. He's had a long career. I mean, he started back in the '80s at, at yeah, early '80s, I think. So. Yeah. Like I know we we threw this term around, uh, just kind of jokingly, but. He is kind of, uh, at this point, one of the old masters, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I consider him as such. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. He ain't scribbles on paper. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. He's he's a really good storyteller. He knows how to draw. Actually, yeah. oh, actually you know, I just r- realized what he he did work on in recent years. He did those Thanos graphic novels with Jim Starlin. Oh, uh, the ones like, okay. The Infinity okay. stuff. I forget. They all had. Yeah. Uh, they all had infinity in it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not. I I never actually read those. Them. Huh. I I never read those. That's why I forgot about them. Yeah. Like Infinity Warp wasn't one of them, was it? No, that was a a Marvel mini event. Oh. That oh was wait. One... Was one of them like Thanos Imperative or Thanos something? Like w- weren't some of them with like with Thanos in the name and then? Yeah, uh... they were all Thanos colon the infinity something or other i think yeah. the imperative thing that you're thinking about i think it was part of the same series but ron lim might have done that one. Oh, i think I mean, that would have been cool if that was ron lim yeah because because well, i know that there's a an omnibus collecting all those jim starlin thanos yeah. graphic novels and yeah. a couple of miniseries and i think ron lim did draw some of them but i, yeah. I don't remember who drew which one I mean, the thing is, they made a for a while when you know all the Infinity stuff was hot. They were they were putting out a lot of that stuff. It was hard to keep track of. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, I wonder how well it did. I might have to look into checking those out at some point because I I am curious about those comics. Yeah, I mean, Jim Starlin was uh, he's he's the the daddy of Thanos, I think. Yeah. So. You know, that's his baby. Yeah. Do you have any uh particular favorite Alan Davis comics, Albert? Uh uh so we're gonna probably go into this a little later, but the nail was actually probably the first thing of his that I ever really read and associated him with. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Uh the second thing that always jumped out at me was um his excalibur stuff and uh third after that would probably be like clandestine so 
those were the things that I associated with him. Um, I don't think I actually ever read too much stuff that Alan Davis uh, wrote or drew. Uh, you mean I do wrote remember, Andrew? huh? The stuff that he wrote, Andrew. Yeah, like other than the nail, the only other thing that I read from him was clandestine, and I never read the Excalibur stuff. But I remember you what were about a Fantastic Four at the end. I don't know. Well, actually, I did read that, I think. Yeah. So, okay. I read that. Uh, but I was going to say the the one thing that always that sticks out to me in recent memory is an issue of Excalibur you were talking about where the Phoenix uh, mm. goes to battle with Galactus. And yes. Even though I didn't read that, just the image, the images that you showed me from that, those issues those are pretty spectacular images. Like if you're just into uh, epic space battles uh, between two space deities, you know, uh, yeah. like it doesn't get more perfect than that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I'd have to say his uh, second stint on Excalibur is probably my favorite work of his. So uh, for those who aren't aware he actually had a couple of stints on Excalibur and when Exc Excalibur, the X-Men spinoff launched back in the late eighties, originally written by, it was originally written by Chris Claremont and Alan Davis drew a bunch of those issues uh, before uh, both of them ended up departing the book at some point. And I'm not too into those stories just because it was Chris Claremont and uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't really, I don't really uh, have too much desire to to revisit those. I mean, if I found them in a quarter bin, maybe, but I'm not really going out of my way to seek them out at this yeah. point. Yeah. But uh, around issue 41 or 42, like in the early 40s of Excalibur, he he had like a maybe like a 24 or 25 issue run as the writer and artist. There were a couple of issues where. Uh, another artist drew the story that he wrote, but basically it's it's his run, you know, like he he wrote and drew uh, the bulk of it. And, and that stuff is really fantastic. I'm, I'm a big fan of what he did with uh, Captain Britain, Nightcrawler, uh, Kitty Pride, a lot of those, uh, you know, periphery uh, X-Men kind of characters. But he was able to do, uh, you know, really good stuff with them. Uh, Rachel Summers, uh, the, the Phoenix, you know, that Galactus story I told you about and you just mentioned, yeah. that was that, that was definitely one of the highlights of, of the run. But, yeah, I think for me, that run on Excalibur from like 42 to 60-something, he, uh, he just knocked it out of the park, man. It, it was just perfectly drawn superhero comics and with the i think some of his later work uh i mean i still i definitely still like it but some of his later work i don't know some for some reason i don't think it's necessarily his line work that's uh falling apart or anything but i think just sometimes the coloring like a lot of the the coloring in some of his more recent work just doesn't complement his line art as well as the stuff from the nineties or even the eighties. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just 
a thing I've, I've noticed with a lot of artists that I kind of grew up uh, reading, artists that were, you know, prominent in the 80s and early 90s. Like sometimes when you look at their stuff, when in the advent of computer coloring, it kind of looks weird. Yeah. But if I were just to look at the pencils and inks, it there's nothing wrong with them. It's, I, th- I really think it's just the coloring sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess people don't realize just how much goes into, like, how many stars have to align for the perf- perfect comic, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah I mean, even, you... in, even in uh, The Nail, there are a couple of bits uh, where I think the coloring isn't too flattering mm. i mean overall the coloring is, is solid uh you know trish mulvihill she she ended up coloring 100 bullets i think so she's oh. she's definitely good yeah but i also think because this is maybe because this is a late 90s comic maybe it was maybe uh it was the first time she was doing things digitally because there there are things like some lighting effects here and there that i think are i'm pretty sure they're done on a computer and they haven't really aged too well it, it just looks weird. Like there's some scenes with fire that I thought uh, didn't look too natural. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Drew is certainly the uh, connoisseur amongst the two of us. Cause <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I'm a coloring and lettering elitist. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm just capable of going, well, it looks like what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I'll stare at a panel for like five minutes just to just to see if all the E's and the word balloons look the same, to, so I can discern if they used the computer or did it by hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's funny, dude. Uh... So we're here to talk about Justice League of America: The Nail. Yeah, so the Justice League of America, The Nail, is a Elseworld comic. So for those of you that aren't really too familiar with um, what Elseworld comics are, it was a, it was, I don't know, would you call it a line? Or... Yeah, it was basically DC's version of What If. So yeah. all of these comics uh, operated around the, the premise that something in the in the universe of this particular story was different from the mainstream dc universe so So it was a yeah opportunity to tell stories with characters that were established but in different settings with uh a different premise for those characters you know so you know what if batman was a pirate or what if uh superman was alive during the colonial days what if um, Batman got a Green Lantern ring? Yeah, stuff like that. You know, just uh, uh, the the opportunity for other writers to do these short stories that were about um, diff- the the heroes that you know and recognize in just different settings. And, yeah, actually, let they- me uh, let me read the little uh, Elseworld Elseworlds blurb. So this was yeah. a thing that they would always put on Elseworlds comics back in the day. It would say in Elseworlds. Heroes are taken from their usual settings and put into strange times and places. Some that have existed or might have existed, and others that can't, couldn't, or shouldn't exist. This 
is one of those stories. <laughs> so that That's that was a... how they uh, always uh, tried to sell the story. Even if it was something lame, like, what if Batman was a vampire? What if Batman <laughs> fought Dracula? <laughs> Man, that reminds... Yeah, there were quite a few of those. Uh, there'd be ones where, what if Superman lived in a post-apocalyptic world where, you know, Batmen were running the <laughs> running the world, you know? Bat, an army of bat vampires were ruling the world. Was that really one of them? I'm pretty sure that was one of them. Oh, man. It was, uh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't good. Uh, like, I never read it, but, you know, just just looking at it as an idea was like, oh, that's pretty lame. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, it, it was kind of like how, with if you look at Marvel's What If comics, because that was a monthly series back in the day, back in, in the 90s. At some point, they just kind of ran out of good ideas, and they started throwing yeah. everything at the wall. Yeah, yeah. And you'd end up with stuff like, "What if Captain America was a cyborg?" You know, stuff that nobody ever <laughs> asked. Like nobody ever asked, "What if Wolverine ate a baby?" Uh, yeah. Nobody should ever ask for that. No one should ever want to see that. Um, but there was so a comic. Know, where, there was, was a "What if" comic issue. where Wolverine ate a baby. <laughs> Do you remember just that so one? you guys know is that was that really an issue was that it, really it, a story that wasn't okay that that wasn't the title of this of the comic i think <laughs> it was like what if the x-men lost inferno or something like that oh and he ate a baby in that yeah because i think he ended up getting uh influenced or possessed by a demon and he ended up eating babies oh yeah it's, it's, well i think there was something you know. about how he would he would uh hunker down by you know women on the brink of childbirth and then just like consume the child as it was entering the world what the okay (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah well so as you can tell i mean this it's the sort of thing where um writers are given the opportunity to test out different ideas so you know not all of them are going to be good not all of them are I mean, some of them are might even be just straight up bad or dumb ideas. Yeah. But, uh, Every once guess, in a while, we got a kingdom come. Yeah, yeah. But I do think, I mean, on on one on some level, it does feel like it's this weird testing ground for for writers to 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 be like, okay, we're gonna give you a couple of issues to write this story. Let's see if you can catch fire, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like, but it's not like they just gave it to nobody's. Like, they clearly like there. There were plenty of occasions where they gave it to um, known quantities. You know, writers that were established and yeah. just let them do their work. And yeah, Alan Davis is is definitely an example of that. Um. Yeah, uh, so I could go into the uh, what the premise of the nail is. Yeah, lay it on him, Albert. Lay it on him. In brief, uh, in brief, what it is is it recognizes and acknowledges that Superman is one of, if not the cornerstone of the DC universe, and the the story posits the question what would the justice league universe or the dc universe look like if uh superman 
wasn't well what would the dc universe look like if superman wasn't there you know Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna go to the beginning of the page so uh it it starts the 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 comic starts with this i I don't know if it's i guess it's a poem where Mm -hmm. it says yeah george george herbert yeah okay by george herbert and it goes for want of a nail the shoe was lost for want of a shoe the horse was lost for want of a horse the knight was lost for want of a knight the battle was lost so it was a kingdom was lost all for for the want of a nail so yeah i mean that poem pretty much sums up the idea that you know one one element missing from uh one 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 element missing from the entirety of their universe could dramatically alter the 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 makeup of the universe is is essentially the idea behind behind the story yeah and the reason why the comic is called the nail is because it it starts off with <clears throat> an actual like a literal nail causing a flat tire in Ma and Pa Kent's truck that fateful day when they were going to drive out. Um, and in the, you know, in the mainstream DC universe, that, that was the day when they came across the rocket that had baby Superman. But in, yeah. in this universe, a nail yeah. gives them a flat tire. So they decide to, uh, you know, stay in and not go anywhere that day. Right. Right. And because of that, uh, the rocket ship with, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the rocket still lands, but they don't find baby Kal-el. Exactly, exactly. Instead, you got in on the third panel of the comic, man. You got Ma Kent and Pa Kent getting randy with each other because they're not going to go out. You know what I'm saying, man? They're like, she's all like, "I'm in the mood to stay home, baby." And uh, Pa Kent's like, "Martha Kent, you are shameless." <laughs> I thought I thought that was funny, dude. The first time I read it, I thought it was funny. When I reread it for our podcast, it made me laugh, man. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not automatically my default idea or image of what the Kents are like. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's hard to it's weird to imagine them being in you know their in their primes and you know getting jiggy with it. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean. I don't know who says getting jiggy with it anymore, but <laughs> come on, home slice, where you at? Home slice, come on, <laughs> uh, give me some dap. <laughs> Up high, down low, too fast, too slow. <laughs> Dude, this comic was from the the late nineties, so that's true. That is true. I'm just injecting the uh, you know the colloquialisms of the time period. Right, 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 man. <laughs> that's a thought <laughs> so yeah do you want to go into uh what your first encounter with the nail was drew yeah the nail was actually one of the earlier dc comics i clearly remember reading because it was the uh the trade that i came across the trade paperback edition i came across probably when i was either in high school or or uh or college like when i was a kid growing up 
I, I didn't really read that many DC comics. I was into Batman, so I had Batman comics. But as far as uh, the other characters, you know, I I, I remember reading the, the story where Hal Jordan went crazy and, and killed the core and then Kyle Rayner became Green Lantern. I remember reading that mm-hmm. um, and I read a lot of Batman. I read a little bit of the death of Superman, but I even even back then I, I didn't like that comic, man. So it wasn't <laughs> anything that that interested me. Right. And I, I didn't really read uh, JLA or anything, even though the mid 90s was when Grant Morrison was doing awesome stuff with it. I, I didn't read that until like, well after he was gone mm. so i was just kind of ignorant about about uh intricacies of the dc universe but mm. i remember this one time man uh i was at borders <laughs> you know the bookstore back when there were bookstores and yeah. i found a copy <laughs> of this on the shelf and i you know i looked at the premise and i thought it was kind of interesting and it was also uh of a story that was just going to be complete in one volume. Mm. So I decided to give it a read and yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, Alan Davis was a name that I, I was familiar with. Cause when I was a kid, I, I liked his Excalibur run uh, and, and his X-Men comics. So I remembered who he was uh, and finding, finding this on the shelf at borders and just reading it in, in one sitting. It, it definitely uh, entertained me. It entertained me for sure. And I didn't really think too much uh, beyond that. Um, but I think a couple years later, I did end up buying my own copy just because I wanted to read it again. And I remember enjoying it that one time when I read it at the at the store. Okay, well done. Well done. What um, about you, man? What was the f- first time you read The Nail? So my memory of it is a little hazy, because uh, I feel like I was exposed to it prior to my actually reading of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, I I don't remember what my initial exposure to it was. I want to say that I was looking at some other comic book and I happened to see an advertisement for it. Oh, nice! And and I think it left enough of an impression on me that. Yeah, like it was it was a pretty simple premise on, on you know, these advertisements are meant to sell you on an idea in one page, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh the 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 concept was simple enough. It was, you know, what would the DC universe look like if Superman wasn't in the DC universe? <clears throat> and I think at the time I saw that and you know, it, it stuck with me, but I don't think it was anything where I was like, oh man, I got to check that out or like, I have to track this down or whatever. It was just something I saw and I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's an idea. That's, that's, you know, it's something it exists. Yeah. And then I remember going to a convention, a comic book convention, um, one of the early ones. And I want to say this was this was a convention that was held at the cow palace in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. If, if it's either the cow palace or maybe in one of the hotels there, there used to be a hotel downtown, uh, like right on Van Ness street. This might not mean anything to you for those of you who don't live in San Francisco, but, 
there was a comic book uh or there was a hotel downtown that would hold these uh you know these small these small cons right mm-hmm. so it yeah it's it's one of those two i don't remember exactly which convention i was at but it it, it was certainly nothing as big uh or elaborate as like uh san diego comic con you know this was like in the infancy of just the cons uh it was actually about comics yeah it was actually about comics exactly so i remember okay i'm gonna i'm gonna say that i i was at the cow palace convention so uh i might have been i think i was in middle school at this point so I went to uh, the convention with a couple of friends and we were just walking around and I remember wanting to buy something, but I didn't know what to buy. And <laughs> yeah. And the thing was, so I I saw the nail, the trade paperback of the nail. And I was like, Oh, Hey, I remember this from that advertisement I once saw. Uh, you must uh, have been in high school, though, though, because of what year the nail came out. Okay, so I might have been in high school then. So I was probably in high school. So I saw the trade, like, sitting... Uh, like, I don't even think it was a discount bin because, like, I wasn't even aware that they sold comic books in discounts. <laughs> so I just saw it on, like, a shelf. Or these kids. Yeah, seriously. And I was like, oh, dude, it's 10 bucks. Or, yeah, I think it was like 10 bucks. So I was like, oh, I just want something to buy. And I'm, you know, of all the, all of the variety that was before me, this was the one thing that I recognized, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I was just like, I'll, I'll just pick it up because, because I know what it is or I know enough about it that reading it, I won't feel lost or whatever. And, um, I didn't regret it. I, I took it home and, you know, I read it and it's, it's definitely a fun action adventure book. Uh, I was like pretty into it for the longest time. And I read it like two or three more times after that. Like, like not, not immediately after it, but you know, yeah. over the years I read it several more times and each time I, I had fun and it even got to the point when, where like my my trade paperback is beginning to get a little dog-eared. So when last year when Drew went to uh Los Angeles, he was in a comic book store or not Los Angeles but Southern California, he was in a comic book store and he said he found a, a hard copy version of it for 10 bucks. I was like, "Dude, I'll take it." Yeah. It was yeah. the deluxe edition that also included the sequel. Yep, yep, totally, totally. So that is my uh, the story of me and the nail. Fun memories, man. Fun it memories. really, it really is. So before we get into uh, really dissecting the contents of this comic, how about uh, you lay on them a, a brief spoiler-free review? Yeah, totally. Uh, so without giving away too much. Um, you know, we've already established that in this universe there, you know, the, the superheroes still exist or, or we've established that Superman is not 
uh, not present. And what we see is in their world, the superheroes still continue to exist, but there is something missing uh, because, you know, Superman is not in Metropolis. So, mm-hmm. you know, all the super various superheroes exist in their respective towns and they even still form the Justice League. But Metropolis itself becomes a state that's very self-reliant and, you know, it is a shining example of what it means to not need a superhero. And they begin to, uh, I guess, spread their message of, you know... Mm-hmm. of how human beings should be self-reliant and you know how we shouldn't rely on these superheroes to do all this stuff for us and it it even goes beyond that it even goes into to the point where they start uh basically accusing superheroes or vigilantes and metahumans uh they accuse them of being alien invaders yeah they're they're foreign threats yeah, right? because yeah. everyone everyone wears a mask. We don't really know anything about them. So, uh, even uh, even the even someone like Batman, who you know, for us the reader, we we know him as a man who has you know maximized his uh, resources and his training to become the most efficient uh, crime fighter in the world, but because of his mysterious background they don't know what to make of him so they even look at him as a potential alien threat you know yeah yeah they think he's an alien or a demon yeah exactly just an unknown quantity and yeah it's uh yeah i i i'm i'm struggling a bit to find ways to describe the story without giving away too much uh yeah i mean i think that's that that's about the the sum of it um yeah. i think in, in terms of g- giving a, a spoiler free review I, for me i would probably just say that it, it's a story that i like a lot um I, I don't know <laughs> if i would say it's like one of the greatest jla comics or not JLA. It's I think it is one of the greatest JLA comics. I don't know if it's one of yeah. the greatest superhero comics. You know, like th- this isn't necessarily something that you would put on a pedestal next to like Watchmen or something like that. Mm-hmm. But but uh, if you're just looking for a straightforward, good old clean fashion, g- clean good old fashioned uh, superhero adventure story. This is, uh, you can't really go wrong with this one. This is, it's got action. It's got drama. The art's really, really good. Mm. Uh, I would, I'd have to say some of the twists are, I don't know if the twists really hold up because I've read this. I've, you know, we've lived with this comic for so long now yeah. that, um it's hard for me to put myself back into the place where i was the first time i read this yeah 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 there there are a couple of twists in the story that yeah i think as i reread it this time around they they didn't really stand out as strongly as before and well i would yeah go ahead i was even gonna say there are some twists where 
they stand out more now, but to me personally, they were, they were a little, you know, they, they required me to suspend my disbelief a little bit in order yeah. to, to accept the, the premise of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I will say that that's just a testament to our evolving sensibilities and sophistication as readers. Yeah. But yeah, not. I also noticed that there are certain elements of the of the comic that he he makes Alan Davis makes some specific storytelling choices that I I guess now that I'm older I I don't think I'm super fond of like for example uh this comic doesn't have any narrative captions like the only narrative captions are when he he gives you the setting like if something's if a scene is about to take place in Metropolis, there will be a caption that says Metropolis. But yeah. he doesn't use narrative captions for any anyone's internal monologue or inner thoughts. Yeah. There are absolutely no thought balloons. But instead, yeah. what we get there are certain scenes when the when when individual heroes are doing something alone. Instead of having thought balloons, they'll actually speak word balloons. There will be dialogue where they're just talking to nobody except I guess the, the benefit of the reader and something like that kind of takes me out of the story at times, just because mm-hmm. it's like, why would the Adam or why would the flash go around uh, describing everything that he's doing when we can just watch him do it? <laughs> right, right, right. You know? Yeah. So it's, yeah. Yeah. I think just little elements like that, they, they don't kill the comic for me, mm-hmm. but in retrospect, I think if he had approached that a little differently, it could have been stronger. But mm-hmm. I'm not really gonna. I don't know. It's not something that prevented me from enjoying it or anything like that. It was just something that stood out and I noticed. Uh, yeah. This time around, and I yeah, I just kind of wish that he hadn't done that. I will say, like, to piggyback on some of your thoughts, but I I will say that. One of the strengths of this comic is the fact that it's three it's three issues in like I think what's that prestige format or yeah, originally I think they were each, uh, forty eight pages yeah so they were a little thicker and a little longer than your average comic so but they were still pretty self contained and the fact that it was a, a alternate universe. Uh, also helped for you know it also helps for readers who are coming into this and aren't necessarily like fully aware of um you know what the vast mythos of the dc universe is Mm -hmm. so i do think that the fact that it was just these initially these three issues uh was was to its benefit and to the benefit of the reader um I, the the thing that I did notice and appreciate was the fact that it's a it's a book that is essentially a tour of the DC universe without yeah. Superman. So, yeah. uh, you know, again, for those of you who aren't necessarily uh fully a- aware of who all these characters are, like he he goes through the effort of introducing you to all of the various corners 
if not most of the various corners of the DC universe. So I think it's educational for someone who doesn't know the DC universe or DC comics. But for me, as someone who um, is more familiar with comic books, uh, it was it was a fun romp to see. Like, well, I, it was fun, but it was even ed- educational for me. I'd say, like mm-hmm. uh, this again, like as as with Drew, uh, this was at the time like probably one of my earliest exposures to dc comics so yeah you know you you got to see all sorts of superheroes and all sorts of supervillains and just like what their existence was like throughout the dc universe yeah and you got Um, to see them use their powers and do cool stuff yeah yeah totally totally um in addition to that i will say i noticed this time around as an adult uh i i did notice the same way that you did that he doesn't use narrative captions or thought balloons. You know, I was going to go back to, to that point um, because I, as I'm flipping through it, I just realized yeah, he, he does use narrative captions at the very end of the story. Like the last, oh. uh, the last That's three true. pages, last That's four true. pages. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a little weird. I, I, I do. Yeah. That's a little weird, right? Like when you go through the yeah. entire story and, and there aren't any captions until the last four pages, it, 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 yeah. it's a little weird. It's yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. It's I just don't... kind of incongruous with the rest of the, of the book, you know, because yeah, it, yeah. the whole, the whole time there isn't anything like that. And then at the very end, he just kind of introduces this, this, um, storytelling device that uh hasn't been used at all so it it is kind of it's kind of jarring i mean it's not like you can't understand what's happening or anything but yeah it's it's just uh an unusual choice i think maybe maybe somebody who was i don't know it it's like at this point alan davis had already written quite a few comics himself like with his excalibur run but Mm -hmm. um you know, his his bread and butter is still as an artist, and I don't know if uh, you know somebody who whose bread and butter was being a writer would have done the same thing. You know, yeah. So it could have just been a lack of experience on his part. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was gonna say that I I made the same observation that you did reading it as an adult. Um, that I did feel. I remember as I was reading it this time around for the podcast, I remember thinking, I remember noticing that there was a lack of thought balloons or, um, or narrative captions, Mm -hmm. but I, I will say that I think, or not, I think, but, um, okay. First of all, let me like clarify that I'm not a fan of generally speaking. I'm not a fan of, I'm not a fan of it when characters are talking about what they do as they're doing it in comics, because that's not what people do. Right. Like, like if I'm creeping through a house, I wouldn't talk to myself and go, I'm going to creep through this house. Now let's see what's behind this door. You know, (laughs) that's it's, it's weird. Let's see what they have in the kitchen. Do they have any Barbara's morning oat crunch cereal in their pantry? (laughs) Do they? 
Do they? How can they not have the greatest cereal in the history of mankind in their pantry? Now I have to creep out to the local supermarket, buy a box of it, and creep back in here and leave it for them so they can experience the wonderful, delightful, wholesome, hearty taste of Barbara's Morning Oat Crunch cereal. I said to myself... <laughs> thinking out loud <laughs> so i was gonna say generally i'm not a fan of that like i've read enough claremont comics to like know that i hate that <laughs> mm-hmm. but i will say that reading it this time around like i don't think it jumped out at me quite as much like for for one thing like the um the nail was a fairly quick read yeah, it's, not, it's not very... Huh? It's not dense. Yeah, it, that's what I was going to say exactly. And it's not very dense. So even as I was reading it, and you know there was the occasional scene where exactly the Adam was was you know doing whatever he was doing and he felt the need to you know narrate <laughs> his activity. Like, at the time when I was reading it, I, I, I don't think I thought much of it. And it wasn't until Drew just mentioned it just now where where I was like, oh, I guess that is kind of weird, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. But as I was reading it, I, like, again, like, I'm not a fan of that style of uh, storytelling normally, but because it was light and not dense and uh, because I was invested in the action that was going on, it wasn't something that irritated me or even really took me out of it because I guess I was just kind of immersed in it. So I I wasn't really thinking about the fact that he was talking to himself while, while he was doing whatever he was doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I can, I can see that. There another element of uh, his writing that I noticed uh, this time around was, Sometimes his dialogue was a little bit stiff. I thought like there are some points where uh, the characters would would speak without using a contraction when a contraction probably would have sounded more natural. Mm. Um, I mean, I I, I don't have a a specific uh, example saved that I can uh, read to you at the moment, but but uh, it happened often enough where eventually by the time i got to the third issue i was kind of looking for those points <laughs> <laughs> you know like oh like, here's one actually no i shouldn't say it until because it, it might spoil it but but uh yeah we, we can talk about it uh when we start spoiling the the actual comic um yeah but yeah, yeah, yeah. are there are there any other uh spoiler free elements that uh you'd want to talk about or or mention or should we just uh No, I I think we covered all of the Yeah, I, I feel like we covered all like the good points and the bad. I, I'm like yeah. I'm satisfied with what we had to say in terms of our spoiler free or as I call it spoy free review. What you call it? Spoy free. Yeah, it's a one word. Spoy free. Yeah. Spoy free, y'all. Y'all ready for a spoy free review? Spoy free? No, is, is that something that people say, or did you just make that up? I just made that up. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to make it happen. Dude, Come you, on, you boys made... and girls. You ready for a spoil-free? Spoil-free <laughs> review? <laughs> you made Chonka Donka happen, so anything is possible. All right, boys and girls. Be ready to buy our Between the Gutters Chonka Donka merch. <laughs> <laughs> You know, reading the story again this time around, I feel like I still enjoy it as much as I ever did. Most of it is is because of the art. I think his storytelling through his artwork is fantastic. Because um, now, now that I just flip through the comic without really, you know, as we're talking, I'm just flipping through it. I, I am noticing, for some reason, I didn't really consciously think this when I was actually reading it. But now that I'm just flipping through it, there are some pages that that do have a lot of text on them, where the the characters are are speaking a lot of dialogue um, to each other. Yeah, but it, I did notice that as well. But I think they were few and far between enough where it didn't feel like I was slogging through it. Like yeah, yeah, it didn't feel I, like I was slogging through it at all. Yeah, occasionally I'll you, he'll you'll come across a page where there's quite a bit of text, but like overall, like. I think overall, I think his, um, you know, him primarily being an artist, he allowed himself to focus the action through the art. Yeah, exactly. So, so there was a lot of, a lot of, uh, scenes where I wasn't, you know, where I felt like, you you had a, a really good mix of a lot of action scenes leading to you know a, a few pages of dense dense text here and there just to you know keep the story going. Yeah, yeah. And the, the thing I was gonna say is even the scenes that that did have a lot of dialogue. Like there's this one uh, two page scene I'm looking at right now where where uh, Green Lantern uh, in this story Hal Jordan is talking with Martian Manhunter and they're basically just in, in a living room talking, but the way that it's illustrated, it, it still looks interesting, you know, like it, it's to me a page, these two pages are, are just as interesting as any of Alan Davis's action pages because he doesn't just draw stilted figures. Like he actually draws emotion on, on their faces and in their their body language, you know it, it's weird to, to think about because uh, Hal Jordan he's wearing a mask that covers his eyes, but you can just tell from his uh, his posture and even just like the way that he kind of frowns his on his uh like the way that he frowns it it's there's there's just a good sense of motion and emotion even in the dialogue scenes, which I think mm. is not a, it's not easy to do, you know, like a lot of, a lot of artists that are really good at drawing action scenes, they struggle with doing scenes that are on the quiet side. They struggle with telling, uh, telling converse, showing conversations, you know, mm. like I, I think about, someone like a, like a David Finch, right? Like that guy's known for drawing flashy splash pages and, and action scenes and really 
hyper muscle hyper muscled uh people and stuff like that like the stuff the kind of superhero comics that that uh are probably i guess they tend to be popular um or maybe they used to, i don't know if he's still popular but uh, if you ever read one of his comics and see him try to draw a conversation he can't do it man <laughs> he can't yeah, yeah. He's, he's the kind of guy that would that would just um just use if it was two people talking he would just use the same he would draw each face once and then just like photocopy the panels over and over <laughs> wow that's uh that's I, I want to say lazy, but I, I don't even know if, yeah, I mean. <laughs> Dude, late, later on, I'll find, uh, there's a scene I'm thinking of that I'll try to find it and show it to you, but he, he did something like that in Ultimate X-Men. I, I'll never forget it. <laughs> uh, has, has your opinion on the nail changed at all uh, after all these times uh, reading it? Uh for this week, at least. Well, I, yeah, I'd have to say that it has, um, like we mentioned it before that, uh, you know, just as we've grown as readers, as we've become more sophisticated, um, as our tastes have evolved, uh, and, you know, as we've just learned to notice different things, uh, about comics, just, uh you know things about technique um yeah i i'll definitely say that even in this conversation that i've had with you in the just this past you know hour or so uh about your observations like i i can say that there was those were definitely things i didn't notice before or didn't notice as much when i Mm -hmm. had first read it so yeah, I'll definitely say that those thing, uh, those qualitative things have certainly uh, changed over time. Um, but in addition to that, I, I'll also say that there are some things that I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just you know, living in 2020 and just the world that we've lived in (laughs) where, where reading this, I like, I can't help but make connections to like just some of the things that I've, I've, I've just lived through in recent years. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to read this story with the context that I have now. (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking the same thing with all the, the fear and hate mongering. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So Lex Luthor is the mayor of Metropolis, and as we were saying earlier, there isn't uh, Superman, so Metropolis has found a way to basically they use don't need technology. Superheroes. Yeah, they don't yeah. need superheroes. They found a way to use technology to dissuade uh, crime, including superhuman crime. Yeah. So, and and for some reason, Luthor is he's uh, he's the mayor of the city. He's a you know an influential <laughs> businessman. Who, yeah. who kind of rabble rouses and goes right? on TV saying all sorts he of... You can't write them stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, exactly. I'm not... Yeah, it's, it's so bizarre reading this in 2020 and going, oh. And, like, you know, and on top of that, he's looking at all these 
masked masked figures, many of them aliens, not of this planet, yes. not of this country. They're you know, foreign. <laughs> they're, he's calling them foreign, and he's saying that we shouldn't have them in our country. Like, it's it's just like I'm I'm not saying. I, I don't know. I, I doubt that Alan Davis wrote this as like some sort of uh, political treatise on, on the United States, <laughs> you know, cause I'm, I'm pretty sure he was just writing a, an adventure story, but it's weird <laughs> how much the country has, you know, become this, the country of the nail, you know, <laughs> uh, it's it's, it's like, it's like uh, it's art imitating life, or life imitating art, rather. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. That was that was definitely one of the uh, the things that I noticed this time around. And again, I I don't think I'm like ninety nine point ninety nine percent sure Alan Davis wasn't making like some sort of statement about the country. He was yeah. just trying to tell a story, and. Uh, and slowly but surely, our our country just became that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's like Alan Davis. He probably just thought, well, if there wasn't a Superman around to hold him back, what kind of villainy would Lex Luthor be up to? Well, he'd probably be able to rise up the ranks in politics, and he still would be a bad person. So and what would he do? He'd, he'd still hate superheroes. Yeah, even he'd, he'd still hate Superman. Superman. Yeah, even if Superman wasn't his primary antagonist, he he he'd still have so many others to hate. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing that uh he he didn't really talk about, the only thing that Lex Luthor didn't really talk about in this comic was he I don't think he was talking about building a wall or anything like that. That was that was probably the one thing that was missing. Well, if, if he was going to say I'm going to have the Thanagarians build the wall and they're going to stay out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, and there's other stuff too. Like even the way that like the press is used in it, in, in the story to like smear all the superheroes. Yeah. Like Perry white and the daily planet. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's just bizarre, man. (laughs) It's just, yeah. Yeah. It really is like life imitating art. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, but those those were some of the weird observations that I had on it this time around. I mean I, I have other ones, but I, I'm gonna save those for the uh the more candid discussion where we uh you know go into our spoiler phase. Are we uh about to exit the spoil free portion? Are we gonna be <laughs> I'm trying to use Spoy your free term- off. Yeah. Spoil free off. <laughs> okay. So so it's okay to really dissect the comic and, and completely spoil everything as we uh, discuss whatever we want to talk about. Yeah. So for those of you who have uh, listened up to this point, if uh, you know if you're interested in checking this uh, the nail out by Alan Davis, we we highly suggest it. By all means, do so. It's it's a fun comic book to read. It's just a great action uh, adventure story with superheroes. Uh, you know. And, and uh, if you, if you read it, also look up the sequel, another nail, because we're yeah. going to be talking about that one next week. Yep. Totally. Uh, but 
If you uh, don't care about spoilers and you want to follow us down the rabbit hole even further, well, uh, strap yourselves in, boys and girls. Yes, strap yourselves in indeed for our anti-spoil-free portion. <laughs> I don't know what you call it, man. Spoil-full. Uh, 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 spoil-full! Here's our spoil-full! <laughs> All right, so, um, yeah, like, uh, yeah, I, let's let's go into the actual dissection of the comic. Let's talk about the various uh, elements. You know, no holds bar. Uh, you want to discuss the Silver Age influence as, as a as a starting point? Yeah. So that was one of the big things I realized now. Um, I think, well, there's also, I don't know if, if your uh, hardcover has the essay that Alan Davis wrote. Uh, my paper, I have the paperback edition, and at the end of the book, he, he wrote an afterword to the story where he, he talks about how he got into comics and what influenced him as he created uh, this comic. Do, does your hardcover have that? Did you read that essay? Uh, it had it, but I didn't read that essay. But it did also include a new uh, forward that he wrote for this particular hardcover. I oh, did read nice. that. Yeah. So okay, well, maybe uh, you can tell me some insights um, from his forward later. But what I was going to say about the essay he wrote at the end of the nail was how he, he discussed how he got into comics um, in the Silver Age. Remember, so he he's... He's British, so he got a lot of uh, comics in England, uh, you know, kind of because of the way that comics were shipped. Sometimes they were just kind of out of order or you'd miss, you'd go a couple months without having a consecutive issue. You would just kind of get whatever you could get um, back in those days where he lived. But for, but for whatever reason, um, you know, the comics that he did find were, were things that he treasured and he really liked a lot of the the weirder, uh, less popular DC titles like stuff like the Doom Patrol or Metamorpho, the Creeper, mm. Ragman. Dude, you like how Ragman showed up in a couple panels in this book? <laughs> Every I time I saw Ragman in one panel, I was like, oh, there's character, man. I mean, I love Ragman, but I just noticed him in the one panel. <laughs> <laughs> He's in like two, man. Okay. He's in that one panel early on. And then if you look at the... Uh, the I just third remember to the, the last one panel page. where he's kicking the dude. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's panel. The panel and then I remember. Third to the last page in that gigantic double page spread. He's he's in the background with all the other heroes. Oh, he's like that's right so underneath the last girl. That's something. Uh, he he got counted. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that story isn't too dissimilar from other stories that I've heard from uh similar writers who are from that region so i remember grant morrison telling uh similar stories to that uh i feel like uh you know post world war or uh, not even it's i mean they they grew up well after world war ii but you know just i think they were growing up in that cold yeah. war environment and yeah growing up in the 60s yeah 60s it was just Hard to get these things, these comics. Uh, 
Like, I think Grant Morrison used to say that... Oh, like, didn't they used to... Didn't he used to say that he, he would get these comic books from Americans who, you know, who were stationed at military bases in the area? Oh, I didn't hear that, but that, that makes sense, actually. That's pretty clever. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, you know, it was... It was an American export at the time, and... Uh, it's weird in the context of everything that was going on, going on in the world. Um, it's weird to think of, you know, how comics are essentially this flyer for truth, justice, and the American way, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I also think that because of the era that he uh, grew up enraptured by comics when he was young, you can tell that he has a, a particular affinity for that era, you know, like the 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 Silver Age and uh, the even the Bronze Age. Like when you look at the the composition of the cast in the Nail, he's got the Silver Age incarnations of the Flash and the Green Lantern, you know, Hal Jordan yeah. and Barry Allen. And this was in the 90s, so this was a period when Wally West was the Flash and Kyle Rayner was Green Lantern. Yeah. Um, even on uh, when, when the comic starts, uh, Batman, he's got his, uh, his bluish outfit, you know? Like his, his cape is more on the blue side than, than black. Right. And it, it, it just has that, uh, that Silver Age vibe to it. Even uh, when Catwoman ends up uh, teaming up with Batman and, and she she dons the the Batwoman costume, she's wearing the the Silver Age Batwoman costume, the, that weird looking yellow one with the red, the yellow and orange, or yellow and red. Yeah, yeah. I never yeah. really understood why that was a why that was Batwoman colors, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never got that either. I was like, uh, what kind of bat is that? <laughs> <laughs> So it's like really Silver Age influenced, but you also see that there's other stuff that he uh, touches on, like the the fourth world characters are are in this. You know, you got Dark Side and and the New Gods making some appearances. Because I'm I'm sure he was a Kirby fan. You know, like which which professional superhero artist is not a fan of Kirby? Yeah, yeah. And then you got the Outsiders in this comic, and even though the Outsiders were created in the in the early eighties. Well, Alan Davis had a long run drawing the outsiders. <laughs> that was some of his earliest DC work, I think. Yeah. So it makes sense that he'd have some fondness for the likes of black lightning and Katana and shade, the changing man. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's an alternate universe. So yeah, they can coexist. Sure. Yeah. I yeah, mean, totally. Yeah. They can all coexist. And it's, it's definitely a story that it, to me, it, it feels like a story that, takes the silver age but gets rid of the campiness for the most part and and just injects a level of of gravity and uh high stakes to a silver age type of story so it, yeah, yeah you know you're, you're not dealing with uh people fighting on gigantic uh pianos or or giant checkerboards or anything like with with huge or 
chess boards with humongous chess pieces. You know, Batman's not fighting on gigantic furniture, but yeah. but you're you're taking those kinds of uh, heroic characters. You know, like everybody, all the heroes in this comic are traditionally heroic. Like, there's not really any grim, gritty kind of junk here. Like, even Batman, he's essentially just uh, you know like the the purest version of himself up until the point when the Joker uh, kills Batgirl and and Robin. Yeah, it's psychologically yeah. messed up. But yeah, every character, all the heroes are just the most absolute, uh, purely heroic characters. Like none of them have any. There's not. There's not really any. There's none of that. Yeah, yeah. There's none of that. You know the 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 darkness that the '90s was known for, right? So yeah, they're not flawed in the sense that you know they've got some sort of addiction or some sort <laughs> of dickery in their personality yeah. that you yeah. know that is supposed to make you identify with them or whatever. Like they're just, I mean, they're not so perfect that they're unbelievably perfect or anything either, but. They're just yeah. good guys. They're, just, you know? yeah, they're, they're good people that are dealing with a situation where an influential rabble rouser is trying to rile the public sentiment against them. Yeah. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out a way to solve that problem that doesn't involve punching somebody in the nose. You know, like they're not going to go to Luthor, Mayor Luthor, and be like, how can you say those things about us? And then, you know, give him a concussion. Yeah, they're, they're not they're not gonna do anything like that. They're they're more like, wait, why are people saying this? You know, this there's even points where the characters are like, this hurts. Maybe I just won't do anything <laughs> anymore. You know, yeah. like maybe I'll just stay out of the public eye. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing that I I didn't want to spoil earlier in the podcast was that um, they're not they're there's a good portion of the book where they're not even sure that Lex Luthor is really the villain. They're, mm-hmm. Like from their perspective, he's just a guy who's advocating a certain message that is against them mm-hmm. and what they've, what they're, what they've come to the, what they're uh, hypothesizing is that there's actually some sort of conspiracy going on that yeah. may be uh, working against them, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's there's this feeling that there's some sort of malevolent force that might be orchestrating even, uh, even behind the scenes of Luther. Like, they're not quite sure who it is that's coming after them, even though Luther is on the surface... Yeah. like one of their most vocal uh critics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know so like you know earlier when we were talking about other th- you know about some of the things that felt um that felt like they hit close to home in in modern times that was another thing for me was the fact that there was this conspiracy <laughs> uh theory about you know this anti-alien conspiracy theory, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. That, was just, that was just another thing that just jumped out at me where I was like, man, what is this world we live in now? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, 
Speaking of that, there was a moment in the story um, this time around, I think because of the world we live in today, I found it much more moving than I remember it in the past. And it's the scene where where uh, Hawk Girl, or I guess she calls herself Hawk Woman in, in this story. When when Hawk Woman, she's at this point where she thinks she's it's just time for her to, to leave Earth and go back to Thanagar because public sentiment has turned against the superheroes. You know, she gets labeled as alien scum. Her husband, yeah. Hawkman, has died in action and, and nobody respects his sacrifice. They just think he, he was an alien scum who deserved to die. So she, yeah. she's thinking it's time for her to just turn her back on Earth and and go home. So she yeah. she calls up her her spaceship from geosynchronous orbit and she flies to it and she starts and then she does that thing where she's she's talking to herself, right, describing yeah. her emotions. But you know, if it when it comes down to it, it's, it's really just about the content of what's happening here. She's she's getting ready to leave, and one thing that she always uh, that that Hawkman had always told her was when you have to leave somewhere, the only way to do it is to start walking and don't look back. She's getting ready to leave and below her um, on, on she, you know, she's flying up to her ship and below her on the ground, there's like riots and stuff happening uh, because of all the unrest. And she, she tries to tell herself that it's not my problem anymore. You know, I'm going to, I'm just going to go home to my planet it's not my concern, but then she looks back and she sees a fire where these uh, two kids are trapped in a burning building. And, you know, the, the firefighters are trying to do what they can. They've already saved the people that they thought they could save. But this building is clearly unstable. It's on fire. These kids are just little kids crying. So Hawk Woman ends up flying into the building. She saves the kids, takes them down to uh, their parents. And then as soon as she gives them to to the mom, the cops are like, freeze, alien. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you just think, dude, what the heck? She just saved these two kids. Why are these cops trying to arrest her? And, yeah. and then you would think that that uh, that would be like a moment where I think a lesser writer probably could have just had everybody, you know, turn against her. And she'd just have to like either fight her way out or, or run. But what ends up happening is that all the people of the community end up banding together and, and forming a line in front of her, you know, saying that she's she's a, a hero and you can't scare us with your fascist propaganda and, and all this stuff. And it's it's the kind of thing that that I guess if if you were to ever see something like that in real life, it would restore your faith in yeah. humanity, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I see yeah. it in this comic at, at this moment in time. I thought that was pretty cool to see. You know, it, it's it's it was a moment where I was able to lose myself in the escapism element of, mm-hmm. you know, what's essentially a cartoon. You know, like a, a, just a, a superhero comic. There's, yeah. there's just sometimes you just look for moments like that when you read a, a superhero comic where it makes you feel something, man. And and that's that's some good stuff right there. Yeah, I. I'd agree. That was a pretty, that was one of the scenes that in terms of emotional cornerstones of the comic, that was probably one of the scenes that jumped out at me as well. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty powerful stuff, you know, like it, I mean, it's, 
It's the kind of stuff that you wish you could see happen in real life. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It was like, it's funny to me on some level in a sad way that you were talking about escapism and the escapism element is that, you know, this mob of people are actually good people. (laughs) (laughs) That's the escapist element of it is that... You know, the fantasy is when society ends up being made up of actual good people. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. 2020, y'all. 2020. Yeah. What about you, man? Were there any uh, moments that particularly stood out for you? Um, Well... The, the moments that stood out for me aren't necessarily, or not necessarily, but they're definitely not as emotionally powerful or touching. Like, mm-hmm. um, well, I, I guess, okay, so one of the moments that really jumps out at me is it's the scene where, you as you mentioned, so... So there's a plot against all the superheroes and they're basically uh, using supervillains, different supervillains throughout the DC universe to uh, to compromise superheroes, like to put them in positions where the superheroes look bad yeah. so that the superheroes end up looking uh, uh, so that the superheroes basically end up being... I guess be smirched in the public eye. <laughs> yeah. That is not a word that I use very often if at all. <laughs> be smirched. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, so you have like every superhero's main villain uh is 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 basically coerced into doing something that um uh, forces them forces each each of their respective heroes to accidentally or on purpose uh do things that are are going to get caught on camera that makes them look bad and uh at one point uh, this force field dome uh, uh, appears over uh Arkham Asylum and the Joker it turns out that the Joker has these energy gauntlets and mm-hmm. You know, to us, the reader, we we can recognize that there's a Kryptonian element to them. Yeah. But, you know, to, uh, so in this world, since Superman isn't a thing, um, to to them, they don't know what this is. They don't know, know what this technology is. And this is probably one of the, like, savagest parts of the book. But yeah. uh, the dome that he he creates around Arkham Asylum. Nobody else can enter it except for Batman and, you know, members of the Bat family. And, you know, Batman shows up and he he realizes that since they're the only ones that can enter, he realizes that, you know, someone wants him there. So he tells Robin and Batgirl to stay behind. So... He goes in there and he tries to take on the Joker. And but the Joker is like souped up now with these energy gauntlets. So he makes pretty quick work of Batman. And 
you know, you think that's kind of it. It's like, oh man, Batman's Batman screwed. But then suddenly, you know, from out of nowhere, Robin and Batgirl have disobeyed Batman's order and they've decided to like jump in there to try to save Batman because, you know, that's just that's what they do, right? Yep. Uh but Joker makes quick work of them too. And these gauntlets that uh he uses, they he he can manipulate energy so that he can hold things uh, like in addition to like blasting things he can also like kind of like things in place almost huh kind of oh, similar yeah, yeah. To telekinesis yeah exactly he, he he can move objects with them but he can also like blast them so you know he's holding batman there and you know batman's at his mercy and you know he can't move a muscle and then with his other gauntlets he's holding you know, Robin and uh, Batgirl, and you don't really see what's happening to them, but you just watch as, you know, as he's just, uh, as as Joker is, you know, lording over over uh, an incapacitated uh, incapacitated Batman, and he's and you just see the legs of Batgirl and Robin twitching, and Joker's yeah. just and they're just screaming, you know, yeah, and. And then there's this three-panel scene where you just see a close-up, close uh, an increasing close-up of Batman's face. And he's just in agony watching, uh, you know, his surrogate children get murdered in front of him. Yep. You know? And, yeah, it's a pretty intense moment. Like, a couple of pages later, uh, you know, you see the aftermath of it. And Batman's just just from the expression on his face, he's like emotionally dead at this point. He's just, you know, and, and you know, on top of that, Batgirl and Robin are dead, dead. Yeah. Um, Joker really and, killed him. Yeah. Like they're like, you don't see their, like you don't see the viscera or anything, but you know, in the panel you see Batgirl's leg and it's, it's dripping with stuff, you know? So, yeah. Left to the imagination, it's pretty clear to you what's what's happening to him. And there's even this line that the Joker makes in it where he goes, um, and if Francis Bacon art isn't your taste, just regard it as an anatomy lesson, right? Yeah. So when I read that, I actually looked up like Francis Bacon just because I'm not familiar with his art style. Uh-huh. And, you know, from what I saw, it's... Francis Bacon apparently liked to draw, like the human figure or like not, not even the human figure. He liked to draw shapes with human features essentially. Right. <laughs> so he would draw these like warped con, uh, contrive uh, warped contorted shapes, but mm-hmm. there would have like rib bones and nostrils and it didn't look like a person, but you know, you, you, you got, so like just based on that uh, comment alone, like, gives me as a reader an idea of what he's done to yeah to Batgirl and Robin, you know? Gruesome stuff. It's really gruesome. And it's, but it's then the what thing it, that that's interesting is that it's not graphically depicted, like you said. It, it's all kind of we only see like we were really looking at Batman's expression during all this. Yeah. Like we don't yeah, actually yeah. see what he does to Robin and Batgirl. And yeah. it, it 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 keeps it less gratuitous 
but it, in some ways it's also like you said left when it's left to the imagination it's it can be more horrifying than anything you see on on the page because if he had drawn something it could have come off as either gratuitous or just really silly or you know yeah. over the top or something but just by focusing the action on batman's expression and the joker's expression I mm-hmm. think our imagination does more than enough to yeah yeah yeah, yeah totally, it, totally it's yeah it, it's like you said man it's, it's it, that's what makes it savage because I don't know about you but when, when I imagine the Joker doing stuff to them it, it's pretty savage yeah you know? like it yeah I don't imagine it was a clean death at all yeah yeah but it's you're absolutely have to be close right casket. yeah. You're absolutely right when you say, like, so much of it is, you know, Batman's expressions. Because just looking at his face, like, his pupils are super small, you know? And then, you know, you have, like, which is weird because, like, in almost every other, like, in almost every other instance when you see Batman throughout the comic book, it's, you don't see his pupils. Yeah, usually just has white slits for his eyes. Yeah, exactly. You just get the white slits. But here you see, like he puts the dots in, and you know it's just indicative of just how like traumatized he is. Yeah, you know. Yeah, totally. And like I'm gonna go into it a little more, but so eventually, you know, he's he's there. Batman's, uh, you know, Batman's incapacitated. Joker's already done what he's done, and then, um. Catwoman, unbeknownst to the Joker, has regained consciousness. She was in Arkham Asylum uh, when the dome came down. And she attacks the Joker and momentarily distracts him. At this point, Batman loses his crap because, you know, he's been freed. Catwoman mm-hmm. has distracted the Joker just long enough to f- for him to get free. And he takes this metal bar and he just smashes the gauntlets. Yeah. You know? He smashes them. And then he just goes after the Joker in this mad rage. And there's this awesome splash page where, you know, they're just flying through the roof. And it's just him, like, backhanding the Joker. Yeah, that's a great page. Yeah. And that entire battle sequence is pretty crazy. And again, like, at this, during the course of this battle, you don't see the white slits in Batman's eyes are gone. You see his pupils as he's, like, engaging with the Joker. And... So you can like now like the the expression is just pure rage and he's just like going ham on the Joker mm-hmm. and then in the final scene you just see him you know grab the Joker's head and it's just an outline but you hear this you see this huge crack and you yeah. know that he just snapped the Joker's neck basically yeah <laughs> yeah and then but, that that's when he gets caught on camera you know yeah camera people the media people see that batman has killed the joker you know yeah. never mind He's the as fact that as we joker is a mass murderer and a sociopath and a monster but <laughs> oh my goodness the batman is a killer <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but oh, like man. that entire the entire batman arc in it is like some pretty um i don't want to say entertaining but it was like emotionally <laughs> entertaining i guess yeah, um, yeah, I know what you yeah, mean. Man. You, yeah, it's one of those things where you don't like. Obviously, if 
it, it, because this is entertainment, you know, like we're, we're being entertained by this. It doesn't, it's, it's a story. It's a comic book, man. Like exactly. It, you're, you're not, you're not reveling in the concept of children getting, uh, you know, their features rearranged or their anatomy rearranged to yeah. death, but you're, you're just enjoying the spectacle of the comic that you're reading. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Like this, it's, I'm not exactly when you say like I'm not reveling in like what's happening to like I don't want to see these things happen but in order for me to buy to be emotionally invested and to buy into the story like I have to believe these things Mm -hmm. you as the reader have to believe these things so in that sense you're I'm engaged and entertained by the story in spite of the fact that these things are happening right yeah exactly so um yeah, and a couple of pages later, like, you know, just to follow up on the idea of Batman and, uh, you know, uh, what we see of him. So there's a news, there's a, a newscast that says that, you know, Arkham burned down, there were no expected survivors, and, you know, they presume that Batman is dead, but then there's a... You know, they they jump to the Batcave and Alfred is in the Batcave and he's just, you know, concerned over what's happened to the Batman. And then, you know, he he, he's he's afraid that Batman's dead. And then out of the the back of the cave, he hears someone call his name and he turns and you see Batman's face in shadow and he's holding Catwoman and they're in the cave. Mm -hmm. And then you get a close up of Batman's face and. This always jumped out at me, just the way that Alan Davis drew Batman's face. Yeah. And just what he's saying. Like, Batman's, like, mask is just torn. You Like, you, his, his one of his eye holes, his left eye hole is, like, much larger and torn, clearly. But you can, again, you see his eyes, and his pupils are just different shapes. Yeah. You know, different sizes. And so, and, you know, his mouth is just kind of drooping, and he's just all emotionally kinds of messed up and he's just going dead 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 you know yeah that was a really memorable panel too yeah yeah well and like just to keep adding to it like i remember you know so uh part of batman's story is him like recovering from this and one of the scenes that always jumped out at me when when i read it uh, when I was much younger, um, cause, and I remember as I was reading this, I was I was like asking myself, did I remember it wrong, or did did that actually happen? And it was this scene where Batman talks about uh, what the Joker did to him, and he talks about how the Joker forced him to watch because he used the gauntlets mm-hmm. uh, to basically keep his eyes open so that he had to witness every second of it. I was, as a kid, that was, I don't know, man, that, that idea, like, just stuck with me as a kid, just in terms of how monstrous it was, you know? Yeah. It's like, what the heck can, can do that to Batman, you know? Yeah. He'd be traumatized by anything, but yeah, clearly that had a profound effect on him. Yeah. Yeah. So like a lot of the story, uh, is about his how he ends up overcoming and, and like I guess 
yeah, I don't know if that's something he can really recover from, but you know, at least he can. It's better than being in a catatonic state, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have any other moments, Drew? I was gonna ask you though. What did you think about Batman killing the Joker? Like, do you think that, like, do you, do you think that even in an Elseworlds, Batman shouldn't kill? Or were you okay with that? I will say this much. When I was younger, it wasn't anything that uh, I I was. When I was younger, I wasn't. I don't think I had such high-minded ideals, so like I never really thought about that. I just kind of accepted it as the story. Yeah. And I will say that it was something that because I read this at a younger point and that was the impression that I always had, it wasn't... Yeah, like the idea that Batman doesn't kill or Superman doesn't kill, that's... that's I, I'd probably say that that's something that I've developed more in modern years. Mm-hmm. So reading this as an Elseworlds and coming from that place where I I was just when I was younger and I read it and, you know, I accepted it as just part of the story. Yeah, like I I guess it jumps out at me now because my sensibilities now are like I, I don't believe that Batman or Superman would kill. Mm-hmm. But just yeah, like it jumps out at me because it it's a stark contrast to like my current view but again because i read this when i was much much younger i don't know i guess it's it just it doesn't bother me or anything uh like i i still enjoyed the story yeah yeah but i will say that there are there are other moments where i did feel that batman wasn't quite in character in in this story and and again it's not a thing where it's like Batman would never do that. <laughs> I I condemn the comic book to the ash heap of history with you. You know, um, so what's an example? So there was this scene, like, and this is something new. This like that I I noticed this time around that I didn't notice when I first read it. But so there's this moment when the Justice League are getting together. And they're hanging out, and they're basically talking about the conspiracy that's happening, right? Oh, uh, yeah. You're talking about early in the book, before early you in the book. Them? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're they're sitting around and they're like talking about, well, you know, the press is after us now. Lex Luthor is after us, and you know, we're we're we look bad in the public's eye. Um, and someone floats the idea that, well, maybe this isn't just a uh maybe these aren't just coincidences there might be an actual malevolent force behind the scenes that's actively trying to make us look bad right mm-hmm. and the thing that caught my attention was batman's over here and he's just like i just care about fighting crime you guys are like being paranoid is essentially what he's saying to them right like mm-hmm. you guys are you guys are talking about conspiracies and whatever and batman's just He's that that struck me as odd that Batman wasn't the one who who you would have expected been. him to be paranoid. Yeah, exactly. I I would have again. This isn't a thing where like looking at it, I I go, I would go. 
that's not Batman at all. But it did jump out at me that Batman would be the one who'd be like, you guys are overreacting, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, realistically speaking, like I, I think I've come to the point where I would expect Batman to be the one who would... If Overreact. he had already revealed the conspiracy, he would be the one advocating for the conspiracy theory right mm-hmm. did that did that did that you know, did i, I you didn't notice think that at of all? It until you just mentioned it but now that you pointed it out i'm i'm uh looking through that scene again and yeah i, I can definitely see your point i think yeah how i would uh try and reconcile that with my image of batman that i have now i think it goes back to what we were saying earlier about the silver age kind of sensibilities mm. because the, the, the real paranoid prep time Batman didn't really come into play until around this era, you know, like around until around the nineties. But I think if we're, if we're looking at these characters as kind of their silver age incarnations, then, mm. okay, I can, I can see why Batman wouldn't be the one who was uh, paranoid and and planning for every possible contingency? He could, I could see him, I could see that heroic, that classic heroic version of Batman being the the guy who's like, all I really care about is capturing criminals. I don't really care about how the the press portrays us, you know. And I think mm-hmm. because because of that, it I didn't really think about it as much but yeah now that you mentioned it if if i were to look at this batman in the same light that i would look at uh you know the idealized or iconic version of batman then yeah maybe maybe that's not exactly how my idealized batman would act but i wouldn't expect to be batman to be caught off guard like a sucker yeah exactly exactly (laughs) exactly It, it, it kind of makes me think of uh, the animated series, you know. Like I, I would, I consider the animated Batman, the animated series, the definitive Batman, and I do think that the cartoon version, the that version of Batman, he's not really the paranoid god of preparation that we had in the comics in the early 2000s either you know Mm -hmm. the the cartoon batman of the animated series was he was more reasonable you know he wasn't he wasn't he was closer to the traditional idea of a hero than he was to uh the vicious guy who had contingency plans to take down his own teammates that yeah. was in the nineties, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I, I, I wouldn't even go so far as to imagine like that version of Batman, where like, because that was, you know, him at the height of, of you know, prep time Batman or whatever you want to call him, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, 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 I. I concede to what you say when you talk about the idealized version of the, or like if we're looking at this Batman as the silver age Batman, like I'll take that. 
right? I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. Again, this isn't a thing where I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, like that's not what Batman would do, and that automatically makes this a bad story. It's it was just something, an observation. Yeah, totally. Like, if if anything, I would think I was thinking about like Grant Morrison's Batman, like when he takes on the Hyper Clan, right? Mm, yeah. Like, that Batman was totally on top of it. And yeah. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah. That, it's, that Batman was completely unfazed by anything. Like, you couldn't surprise that Batman, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. so he, he had every bit of information he, he needed, so there would be no way that, that uh, like, in, if you took that version of Batman, the Grant Morrison, JLA Batman, that version of Batman wouldn't be caught off guard by a supposed conspiracy theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, speaking of Batman, another thing I wanted to ask you about was, so we, we, we talked about Batman uh, killing the Joker. We talked about Batman and <laughs> being caught off guard by a conspiracy theory. What do yeah. you think about Batman crying? <laughs> Does Batman, Batman cry? Did it cry? <laughs> I cannot have it. Oh <laughs> uh, man. Um, I don't know. Like, uh, that's not one of those things that I was ever steadfast on. So, like, I, I, I don't have any problem personally with the idea of Batman crying. But that's me. It's not yeah. the hill that I'm willing to die on you know, <laughs> either way. Yeah, I hear you on that. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I think Batman crying in this comic, it makes perfect, absolute sense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't, like, I can't figure how they could tell that. How, I couldn't figure out how Alan Davis could tell the same story with Batman's character arc without showing the depths of his emotion yeah yeah now that you mention it this this version of batman is probably the most emotional like the most emotionally vulnerable version of batman (laughs) that i've seen in a while yeah you know he's he's the kind of batman dude it's like after after uh robin and batgirl are murdered in front of him he's the kind of batman that you want to give a hug to him, you know? Yeah. Any yeah, other version yeah. of Batman, you would just like let him stew in the corner, kind of be on yeah. his own, give him the space. But this version of Batman, it's like, dude, you need human connection at this moment in your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. Any other uh, thoughts that you want to speak about? Well, there is one thing that I'd have to mention, uh, like, and I, I, I would feel like a chump if I didn't talk about it. But <laughs> this, uh, this comic has probably one of my favorite Green Lantern slash Batman fight scenes, like ever. Mm-hmm. You know, so towards the end of the book, the the revelation is that. Um, well, the, the culprit behind everything is revealed to be Jimmy Olsen and Jimmy Olsen is this 
in in this universe, he was the bright-eyed sidekick who who grew up amongst the superheroes. But at this point, he's turned to Lex Luthor, and he's he's seemingly denounced his powers, and you know he's sided with Lex Luthor in in his quest to rid the world of super people or super foreigners, whatever you want to call them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the revelation is that Jimmy Olsen was actually masterminding everything and he was even, you know, mind controlling Lex Luthor. And what it turns out was Lex Luthor actually got a hold of the Kryptonian spacecraft, but there was no baby there. There was no, you know, Cal L, no Clark Kent. But there was enough DNA samples and they decided to try to create a a clone from the DNA samples that they did find. Mm-hmm. But the clones weren't successful at all. So they decided that another approach was they were going to graft the DNA to living species. And since Jimmy Olsen had had uh, some experiences with uh, basically metahuman, you know, super superhero genetics, superhero genes in, in his DNA they decided to graft the Kryptonian DNA to him. Mm-hmm. So this ver- version of Jimmy Olsen is actually a Kryptonian hybrid who's just, he's basically like Superman, you know? So the battle is just him beating the crap out of everyone. And it's just, it almost feels like it's a futile battle, right? Mm-hmm. So he's like, he he's just smacked Wonder Woman to the ground. And then, you know, it's all of them just trying to, all of the Justice League just trying to mollywop on Jimmy Olsen. And he's just, he's just handling them, you know, like they're nothing. Yeah, Batman's punching him in the face and Jimmy Olsen has this poop-eaten grin on his face. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So, you know, at this point, all the the super-powered heroes are down. And Batman and uh, Batwoman, they just have the Kryptonian gauntlets and they're just trying to blast him, you know, and he's just like... You do you really think I would give the Joker weapons that could do me any harm? You know, he and then he uses you know the same technology and he grabs Batwoman with the energy gauntlets while he's, you know, uh manhandling Batman and he's basically going to do to Batwoman what Joker did to Robin and Batgirl, but this time Batman's free enough and he's again, like like Drew said, he's just punching him in his face, uh, punching Jimmy Olsen in the face, and he's just got this grin. And this is my favorite scene: Green Lantern's on the ground and he's all messed up, but he's just basically he's just going. He, you know, he looks over at Batman and he goes, "You know, let me give you a hand." And he just supercharges Batman with his ring. Yeah. And Batman just you know, smashes Jimmy Olsen in the face, you know, and, and I love this battle because, you know, Batman's the master of like martial arts and all that, but this is a battle where Batman's just basically just savagely beating another man. (laughs) (laughs) They're just brawling is what they're doing. He's just throwing haymakers powered by Green Lantern ring. Yeah, so Green Lanterns, I love this. Like, this is one of my favorite Green Lantern scenes, but which is kind of sad because he's not even fighting him directly. <laughs> so Green Lantern's just using the ring to, like, 
you know, project a green aura around Batman and supercharge him. And, like, Batman and Jimmy Olsen are just, like, beating the crap out of each other. And, but, you know, you're watching Green Lantern and he's just, he's feeling every punch that Jimmy Olsen is, like, you know, yeah. putting into the force field. So you you just see his facial expression as he's wavering. It's, I love that battle, man. Yeah, I love that, it so that's much. a really, really good drawing there. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that scene right after when uh when Hal runs out of when his ring runs out of energy, yeah. Jimmy gets the upper hand again, and he's he's about to finish off Batman, and he wants he basically wants Batman to to beg for mercy or or yeah. tell him that he's uh, omnipotent, and Batman, yeah. you know, he's he's like half unconscious at this point. He's, yeah. he's taking a beating himself, and all he can like, say you can is go see to hell. his face. He's yeah. just—he's kind of a pulp. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like when you look at a, a boxer who's gotten punched in the face a bunch of times. Yeah, before he goes to his corner man, like you know, his his eyes start wherever he's getting hit. You know, wherever he got hit, it's getting all puffy and messed up. Yeah, you know, he, he needs he needs that dude in the corner to to fix up his cuts and stuff. That's how Batman looks. Yeah, and then and then the the. I guess the climax of the story is right here, so I guess we could, now's a good time just to, to talk about it, but Jimmy Olsen's about to lay the killing blow on Batman, and an Amish dude comes up, and he tells him to stop, so Jimmy lays out uh, his heat vision on the Amish dude, and it turns out this Amish dude is, is Kal-El. Yeah. Superman. It's, so it's Superman. He, uh, yeah. He... He doesn't kill the guy with his heat vision, but he just discovers that this is the the alien that crash landed all those years ago. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it's funny because the Amish community is nearby, so Kal El's uh, Amish parents are are there, and yeah, and then they they uh, they have. It's weird to think that they're having a, a discussion with after, like in the midst of all this violence, where Jimmy <laughs> is like trying to convince. Yeah. Kal-El to team up with him because as Kryptonians they they deserve to to rule the planet because of their power and Kal-El's Amish parents are telling him that uh you know don't be involved because uh, yeah, this is to, the way of the world yeah to walk he, his father literally says to walk in righteousness you must ignore worldly affairs <laughs> and, then, and then they're trying to they're begging their son to, to walk away from all this. And then Jimmy Olsen just says, this is tedious. And he uses his heat vision and burns his parents <laughs> to a crisp. <laughs> oh, man. Why, why is that funny? I don't know why, but I, I think that's funny. Um, I, so, okay. So th- this is the thing where reading it recently. So the first time <clears throat> I read it, I I didn't really think much of the twist of of uh, Clark Kent uh, being in Amish country. Yeah, like and j- he just happened to be there. But there is something now rereading it uh, with my with the sensibilities that I have now, where it's it's a bunch of like pretty random things to have happen <laughs> in order for that conclusion to 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 <laughs> culminate the way it did right 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think, I think as a whole, that entire sequence is, is what adds to the comedy of it for me, (laughs) you know, between this random Amish farmer being Superman and, uh, you know, his family getting murdered right on the spot, like just to have him have that heroic arc, like just all play out right then and there within the span of seconds really yeah <laughs> it's, it's two pages man it's like damn. yeah yeah and i will say this uh like this this was this was the thought that i had even as a kid um and and i still feel it now so it, it is something where i don't know if if cheat uh, if a cheat is necessarily the right word because i i the 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 uh what's it called the the implication of the of to use the word cheat means that it's you know something wrong or something bad yeah when that's not what i mean it mean at all but <clears throat> but but i'll just say it but um for me, the nail was always a story about a universe where there was no Superman. So for 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 it to end with Superman, it was always kind of weird to me. It was yeah, like one I of those what if stories, that. huh? I can understand that. It was yeah. It's like one of those what if stories where it's like, what if you know, it reminds Uncle Ben me, never died. Yeah, and it reminds ends me up of dying like, anyways. It reminds me of that. What? Yeah, exactly. Like that what <laughs> if comic where it was. What if the Punisher's family was never killed? Well, yeah. if you read that issue, the, the Punisher's family doesn't get killed at the picnic, but they die later on, and he becomes the yeah. Punisher. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I still, un- I, I still found the nail immensely entertaining, but I just, even as a kid, I was like, wait a minute, that like completely misses the conceit of the Elseworld altogether. <laughs> But but here here's how I would defend that uh, choice though because if you go back to the very first page of the comic of the first yeah. issue, the that last panel it still shows the rocket crash landing right. So even yeah. from the beginning of the story, you know that it's not that Superman doesn't exist. It's that the that Ma and Pa Kent didn't find him. That that yeah, was the yeah. real. Uh, you know that's the real difference because of the nail. It's not that Superman didn't exist at all. It's just that he didn't have the nurture that he should have had. You know, he he right, didn't right, have right. Ma and Pa Kent instilling values in him so that he would become the uh, yeah. Superman in Metropolis and all that. He just had these weird Amish people that yeah. were destined to die to teach him to be Superman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that, Amish people? We're coming after you. <laughs> oh, man. Do, do Are Amish people, do they read comics and stuff? Or are they allowed to partake in, in entertainment like that? Good question. I, I imagine if, if they forsake worldly things that they wouldn't. I imagine be comic aware books of are no no. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. But I I, w- I would imagine so. 
Yeah, I mean, part of me does wonder if an Amish person read this comic, would he be offended at the depiction of Amish people? Yeah. I will also say this. Um, th- this is a thought that I just had just now. But mm-hmm. so the very last page of it is, you know, uh, is all the Justice League members there in like this splash page looking heroic. And you see that Kal-El slash Clark Kent has assumed his role amongst them as Superman now, right? Mm-hmm. Front and center. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me that's curious to see what a Superman who who grew up as an Amish person would be like, <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm curious about that now. <laughs> I want that Elseworlds. What if, uh, what if Superman was Amish? <laughs> yeah. he, he wouldn't. He wouldn't uh, leave his farm. I guess he wouldn't be able to go to the Justice League satellite. <laughs> yeah, he'd he'd just be like, "Yay, I shan't be fighting Lex Luthor today. His crops, tis." Tis the raining season. We <laughs> shall be planting our crops. <laughs> Where's where, where that in the 1920s Chicago gangster voice? <laughs> I couldn't even do that. Uh, but, but Brother Jedediah. Like, what, what was that? <laughs> Brother Jedediah. <laughs> <laughs> the most stereotypical Amish name. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine an Amish Superman fighting uh, like Darkseid or somebody? It's like, how do you get to the to the to Apocalypse or New Genesis if you if yeah. you reject technology and you don't yeah. take the boom tube? Like he would have so much catching up to do, right? Yeah. Like, forget not even like being able to use technology, but imagine if Superman, as an adult, fully formed was still wrapping his head around television. <laughs> what is this device? <laughs> yee, I, yay, there be demons! <laughs> so speaketh I! <laughs> oh, man. man uh, I hope Amish people don't listen to these jokes that we're making about their culture. <laughs> I, I mean, unless we're putting them on, uh, uh, you know... Well, unless we happen to be in a farm in Pennsylvania shouting it from a megaphone, I find it hard to believe that they're going to gain access to this. That's true. Unless everything I know about the Amish is completely wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Everything I know about the Amish, I learned from watching a couple episodes of Amish in the City. Remember that reality show? (laughs) I do. I do. There was another one that I saw recently that also caught my attention, which was Amish Mafia. Is that a reality show? It's a reality show about the Amish Mafia. Just That's crime, and maf- crime in Amish communities or? Uh, organized crime in Amish communities. Oh, yeah. wow. Um. What do they? What do their uh, enforcers use as weapons? Uh, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I never actually watched an episode. I just remember seeing the commercial and just being fascinated by the thought of it. 
<laughs> yeah, that that is pretty fascinating. I'm, I'm after we get off, I'm gonna have to look it up on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, look it up, man. It's a thing. I I am not making this up. <laughs> it just sounds like like stuff like that and and Amish in the city. It just sounds so disrespectful. Like the concept. <laughs> wow, me and you completely had different thoughts because I was like. That sounds super entertaining. <laughs> oh, don't get me wrong. I was extremely entertained. I, I thought Amish in the City was hilarious, man. But but on, on some level, it was also exploitive, you know? Yeah. Okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. <laughs> there was a, one more element about this comic that I, I wanted to, to touch on briefly. And it's, it's something that Alan Davis mentioned in that essay that he wrote at the end of the trade paperback, he he mentioned that he inserted his own kind of tributes to the Amazing Spider-Man in in this series, and you see it in the splash the one page splash pages that are sprinkled throughout um, all of the issues, and typically these splash pages are of one of the Justice League members doing something or fighting somebody yeah. like the, the scene where Hawkwoman rescues the two kids. That's a big splash page. The The scene where Batman is fighting the Joker as they, as they crash out of Arkham Asylum on the roof. That's a splash page. Uh, the scene where the flash fights Amazo. There's a big splash page. Aquaman fighting ocean master. You know, it, he wrote that, he intentionally designed those pages as an homage to the amazing Spider-Man annual number one by uh, Lee and Ditko, which, mm. which we, uh, we talked about the series in our Marvel top 25 uh, run of episodes a few episodes ago when we talked about amazing Spider-Man at, at number two. I don't remember if we, specifically talked about that first annual but since i had read that recently it was still fresh in my mind and one of the things about that annual was that it did didco did have really he had six splash pages in that comic one for each time that spider-man fought one of the members of the sinister six because that whole story was the first appearance of the sinister six and each each little chapter of bat of spider-man fighting the different members of the Sinister Six was punctuated with a big splash page. And I guess that was something that Alan Davis uh, appreciated. So he kind of did his own thing uh, throughout the nail. And I don't know. I just thought that was kind of a fun factoid, especially because we had fun. talked about Spider-Man uh, a couple episodes ago. Yeah. Like, I never realized that that's actually a really cool um, tidbit uh because those the splash pages are actually really cool because i was just thinking about this but he really does give each uh member of the justice league a moment to shine yeah so so it's cool that i i will say that this is one of uh yeah at least for me i'd say it's one of my favorite justice league stories because it really does highlight each of them individually and just has them each doing something cool. Like it's a good, mm -hmm. it's a good example of a, uh, 
a comic with an ensemble cast, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, they don't, they don't always nail it. Oh, well. <laughs> 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 they, they don't always nail it because, like, sometimes they tend to focus too much on specific characters. Like, you know, people love Batman, give them more Batman. People love the Flash, give them more Flash. Uh, and, you know, not everyone gets um, an even... Uh, an equal number amount of time, of, yeah. you know, FaceTime or whatever. But I really do feel like the the nail does a good job of just giving each member, even the Adam, even, you know, yeah. who, and Aquaman. He, yeah. Well, well, I, I like Aquaman, but I was going to say the Adam has always been a character for me where he was always a hard character for me to, find any pathway to to liking because i mean his power is to get real small so i never really saw a lot of like adventure or like action potential to that you know dude he could uh get small go up thanos's butt and explode yeah but he can only do that so many times (laughs) (laughs) you know but yeah like so for for um you know Alan Davis to draw give at the Adam a moment where he goes on his own little adventure that was cool you know totally totally yeah I also liked how the Flash beat Amazo one on one like that yeah. cool scene where he uh he uh vibrates his body so quickly that he modulates his dimensional frequency and becomes intangible then yeah. sticks his hand inside Amazo's head and removes his brain. Like that's yeah, that's pretty. That was pretty clever. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Like that there's a lot cool of cool part. little bits like that. Like every, like you said, man. Everybody has a has a great chance to shine. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's a it's a fun comic. It's cool beans, dude. Ultimately, let me ask you this. Ultimately, what do you th- what would you say that this story? has to say about the nature of the dc heroes or what does it say about superman uh i don't know it's i don't really have to think on what it says about the nature of dc superheroes but i do think i mean it definitely has something to say about superman like it it acknowledges superman as the cornerstone of the DC universe, basically, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's one of their most recognizable and famous characters. And even, even that poem that we discussed earlier just talks about how crucial he is to, to their universe and mm-hmm. him not being there. I, yeah, I guess you could say, Okay. Here's what I, I think it has to say about Superman. Like, even even if his circumstances weren't the same, uh, you know, if, even if he didn't land in that uh, cornfield mm-hmm. where Ma and Pa Kent would find him, I guess ultimately he's destined to become Superman. And likewise, you can say the same about all the other superheroes in the nail, all the other members of the Justice League, because in their universe, they all still very much still end up being uh, the heroes that we, for the most part, recognize. 
You know, Hal yeah. Jordan is still Green Lantern. Barry Allen is still the Flash. Bruce Wayne is still Batman. Like we we don't see anything that's so different, at least in terms of the core Justice League members. Yeah, we don't see anything that's drastically different. They still end up being the heroes that they would have been in the main universe. Mm-hmm. So I guess ultimately what it has to say about the heroes of the DC universe is no matter what the continuity, they end up, you know, their their heroes, her, heroism, heroism, yeah. their heroism shines through. Yeah, they're... Uh there's a purity to them, right? Like there's a pure quality to them that regardless of the circumstances that they would be in, they're still going to be good people. They're not going to, they're not even, even when the public is against them, they're still going to try to do the right thing. And I guess the point of the nail was to show that without Superman there from the beginning, they were kind of vulnerable to public mistrust. It's almost like mm. it's saying that it's almost like the story is saying that Superman gives the world a reason to trust the justice league. Mm. I don't know. It, it it's, it's no, that, that's a great observation. Yeah. It, it kind of feels like Superman is, it's like you said, everybody is, is still going to be a hero regardless of whether Superman existed or not. But there's something uh, fundamental about Superman to the concept of the DC universe where he he's just supposed to be the one that's the pillar or the, the cornerstone of all of the heroes. So when... Yeah, when whenever anything happens, he's the he's the one that will just be the rock, you know. Like he's gonna be the one that gives people in in their world a reason to continue believing. Yeah, like I feel like that's a theme that comes up a lot whenever they do Superman stories. Is the idea that it's kind of the way like that Captain America is for the Marvel universe, but it's always. You know, Superman was the first of us, but he's also the best of us. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I don't know why I thought about this just now, but you just made me think of that scene in the 90s Marvel DC crossover. You remember that? Uh, The scene where the the two brothers who created the different universes, they look at each other's work. And notice each other. Yeah, but but what they do is... They don't compare Captain America and Superman. They compare Captain America and Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were a lot of things wrong with that story. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't you don't consider Batman the fundamental cornerstone of the DC universe? Oh. I mean, he is in a certain way, just because he's such a such a known uh, aspect of the DC universe. Mm-hmm. But he's he's certainly not the hero of light. He's not. He's certainly not the hero that inspires. Right. Like, I don't think 
his entire point of being is to be a banner, to be inspirational. That's that's not him at all. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I Yeah. Uh Yeah, like it's 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 definitely harder to make that argument that Batman is going to be the one that gives us hope and <laughs> you know, uh That isn't to say that I don't think that Batman isn't capable of those kinds of stories. But Right. Yeah, that's just not what I associate him with. Uh, yeah, it, it just feels like it just feels like a concept like that is where Superman should take precedence. Yeah, it's, it's not yeah. that Batman isn't deserving or worthy of the comparison or the idea of being uh, the cornerstone, but it, it's just that it, it it really does feel like Superman should take precedence over Batman in that situation. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure that they were just uh. They were looking more at power sets than they were uh, themes. Yeah, I mean, that was a comic book series that had Wolverine defeat Lobo. So you can't really take it. panel. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You can't really take it too seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't take it seriously at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, for a, a comic that touches on a whole mess of characters, like just a bunch of characters throughout the universe, I would definitely say the nail is way better than that Marvel vs. DC miniseries. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. Yeah. If you want yeah, if you want an event kind of comic, check out the nail. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. It's good stuff. Yep. Anything else you want to say before we call it? Uh, I'm I'm just gonna tell uh, all of our listeners that you know if you guys uh, have any questions uh, that you want to ask us, feel free to contact us at between the gutters podcast at gmail dot com or on our Instagram. Um, yeah, if or if you uh, want to make any comments of your own if you've you know had the opportunity to read it and you want to contribute to the conversation yeah message us uh, at either of those places and you know at us or comment towards us and uh, we'd love to have that conversation with you guys absolutely and stay tuned uh, for next week if you want to read what we're going to talk about in our next episode we're just going to read the sequel to the nail it's called another nail uh and it's also obviously by alan davis and mark farmer so yeah uh give that a read ahead of time if you feel so inclined uh i really like another nail quite a bit also i actually think the artwork is even better in the sequel than the original uh but yeah uh we'll we'll be uh discussing that in our next episode so Hope you can uh, join us for that as well. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This is Between the Gutters, signing out. Peace. Peace.